0: This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to this episode of The Vine Guy. My name is Scott Greenberg, and I'm your host. And it is my great privilege and pleasure to welcome to The Vine Guy podcast today, a very good friend of mine, noted wine journalist and wine critic, Dick Rosano. Dick has been writing about wine, food, and travel for many years with long-running columns in the Washington Post, wine Enthusiast, and several other notable publications. Now retired, Dick's day job was really something out of a James Bond novel. During his career in nuclear counterterrorism, I'm not making that up, Dick advised seven foreign governments and served on task forces UN's International Atomic Energy Agency. But today, Mr. Rosano has a slightly more relaxing, but equally challenging avocation. He's a published author of 10 books in print, ranging from the historical wine heritage, the story of Italian-American vintners, to a series of novels all set in Italy, including his latest title, Islands of Fire, The Sicily Chronicles, Part 1, and recently followed up by The Crossroads of the Mediterranean, Part 2. Now, we're going to get to all of that shortly, but first, I'd like to welcome Dick to the podcast. Thank you for being here, Dick. Hey, Scott. Great to be here. You know, you and I have known each other for many years, and we've shared several bottles of wine over those years. (laughs) A few. A few. I have never asked you, how did you actually get into wine?
1: I guess you're saying other than the fact that it tastes fantastic and we should all be into wine, but uh, we each have our own story. Yeah, we we each have our own stories. Uh, My parents uh, came over from Italy my father from Sicily and my mother from Southern Italy. And when they did, they brought along the culture with them. They brought along among other things, the wine making, the home wine making a culture. And so my mother's father continued to make wine in um, Brooklyn, in in their house in Brooklyn for many years until he passed away. And when he did, I, for reasons left, right, or in between, I ended up inheriting the responsibility for making wine for the family. Uh, it was more more than just a hobby and less than an a, than a vocation we were making i don't know about 700 to 1000 bottles a year uh spread among many families well, our family but many separate uh nuclear units no pun intended did, in in fact the, there's the old uh, line about how if you know how to make wine you'll always have friends and um my grandfather enjoyed that Uh, I did too. And I have to say, as an aside, in my neighborhood here, in the suburbs of Washington, whenever the grapes would be delivered, even the kids riding by on their bicycles would point to the stack of crates of grapes and say, it's grape time, it's grape time. (laughs) Very attracted to the process.
0: Now, isn't there also another saying in Italian families that each Italian family should either produce a priest or a winemaker? Yeah, that's true. And I think I chose the right vocation.
1: What kind of wine
0: were you making? What were those? I guess you're still making the wine, aren't you?
1: So, Well, I, I have suspended my own operation. I did it for 35 years. To answer your question, it was almost always Zinfandel, in large part because Zinfandel is in itself a very Italian-style grape. Uh, we could spend a long time talking about it in more specifically, but the, but Zinfandel uh, is, is a derivative of the Primitiva grape from my mother's home region in Puglia. Uh, but that fact notwithstanding, here in the United States, it's sort of spicy and vivacious and has lots of texture, very Italian in its own way. So I always got um, Zinfandel grapes. I did make other batches. I made Chardonnay, and I made Pinot Grigio, and I made Barbera, and I even made a couple of Cabernet Sauvignons. But I I have to say 90 to 95% of the wine I made uh, was Zinfandel.
0: So if you've suspended your operation, is uh, anybody going to be carrying the torch for you in the future? Uh, yes,
1: absolutely. My daughter who grew up with the process, in fact, I was already making one before she was born. Uh, she's 28 years old now. She's a doctor and she probably knows more about the chemistry be- behind it than I do. Uh, but she has sworn not only that she'll carry it on because, I guess, for, in my honor, but she's sworn to do it because it is in her nature, in her life history, just as it was in mine.
0: I never realized that you were first generation uh, Italian American, and I guess, well, that probably explains the whole winemaking thing. The one big question I have, Dick, is how come I never got a bottle of this?
1: <laughs> well, you're welcome to, and we'll have to make those arrangements. The The truth about homemade wine, and, and it's actually quite good wine. The wine has won a number of awards, and that's not really the important thing, but it's it's better than just sort of something slapped together. Having said that, homemade wine has a unique characteristic that commercial wines do not. And that is that it, for one thing, it's very seldom filtered. And so it goes into bottle without filtration. Mm. And there are other, there's a thing called bottle variation, which I know you're familiar with. Bottle variation is more of a plague to the home winemaker than it is to the commercial winemaker who can control things like temperature and filtration and so on. So I tend to uh, host people at my house and serve them my wine because I know that if there's a bottle that shows up lower than my own standards or expectations, I can go back down to the cellar and get another one.
0: Perfect. You know, I am actually very curious to try one of your wines, one of these. So we will do that. Over and we're back in the same city. Once, we're, once
1: the pandemic's done, that's right.
0: Yeah we, yeah, we have had a lot of wine together. I just haven't had your wine. You've had this passion for, of winemaking for 35 years, right? how does that translate into this amazing career that you had as a wine writer, mm. some mm-hmm. very prestigious uh, publications?
1: It would be odd and sort of funny to say that it's in my blood, but so to speak it is, and wine was always part of me. But another, thing, another factor that came to bear on this, or two other factors, One is that uh, for reasons that I'm not sure of and I probably don't deserve any credit for my ability as a writer has been recognized in my professional career and elsewhere. And of course we all have heard the story that when you write, you should write about what you know. And I grew up with wine. And so if I was going to be a writer, I thought I should write about wine. Uh, But the, the other, the other factor that helped was that in my career in uh, Counterterrorism. I've traveled the world, and I've traveled to many countries that our tourists like to go see, in addition to many countries that our tourists would never bother to go see. But I've cataloged a lot of miles and a lot of countries, and it made it easier for me to write about not only the wine that comes from these countries, but the cultures and the people that are there. Uh, And I don't know that it's necessarily more than others, but I think the last I counted, i had been to 40 countries, but I've been to probably 20 of those countries multiple times. And I think that it's like most things in life. The more experiences you can combine, the more that it fills in the blanks and adds color to the story that you'd like to tell.
0: Well, I know you're a pretty modest guy, so I'm going to fill in some holes for you. I'm going to brag about you a little bit. In 1994, I believe, you started writing a wine column for the Washington Post. That's a pretty prestigious publication in and of itself. I think we could really maybe agree that there's only a handful of newspapers that really produce the, the highest level, in my opinion, the highest level of, of wine columns. And I would put the Washington Post certainly top among them. Tell me, Dick, how did that come to be? Very
1: interesting story. I had launched, um, uh, I shouldn't say a career in writing, but I had begun my writing and and hoped for publications. I had published two articles, and I was asked by the American Wine Society Journal to write a a routine column for them, and and that was good. That was helpful. But the thing that happened at the Washington Post was that the then wine columnist, Ben Giliberti, really kind of shouldered the entire column every week by himself, was looking to uh, share it and unburden himself with some of the weekly, you know, uh, responsibilities. And he and I met uh, one day and I believe that my writing was uh, good enough to win attention, but I have to agree that had it not been for uh, meeting Ben and getting to know him and I'm sure getting maybe a plug from him, Uh, You know, sometimes it's uh, opportunities in life that give us a chance to get going.
0: And how long did you write for The Post?
1: 14 years. I wrote uh, the wine column in an alternating fashion for about uh, two years. And then I was called by a subsequent editor, food editor, who asked me to come back and do a wine food column and then that had its turn for a couple of years and then I went off and then another editor called me and asked me to do an additional wine food pairing column. That was my own. I don't know that lasted for half a dozen years or something.
0: So let me tell you what I remember about your column in the Washington Post. I was just starting my adventure into wine when you started writing in 1994. And I remember very clearly that we would wait with bated breath for the Wednesday Washington Post to come, and which is when your wine column would appear in the Wednesday uh, Washington Post. And the first thing we would do is, I don't care what was on the, the front page. I don't care what the headline was of the day. <laughs> we immediately turned to the wine column and looked at what you were recommending and then either made a mad dash to our favorite wine shop or called them and said, can you put this aside? And I have to tell you, on a number of occasions, I'm not exaggerating, on a number of occasions, because of your column, the wines were already sold out. And, and while it was in, incredibly educational, it was also very frustrating, Dick, I gotta tell you. And uh, So I have to say that I was a huge fan, even back then, and you probably don't know this, but you are largely responsible for many of the wines that as a young consumer, I chose to purchase. So thank you.
1: I, I have a feeling that it was your own palette and your seasoned palette as it went on that did that. I, I would like to take credit for some of that, but I don't think I deserve it. What I tried to do, I, it was very important to me to serve the interests of the readers. And when I say that, it's not just sort of some random generalized statement. But for example, a couple of rules, Uh, I wouldn't spend any time on the column writing about wines I didn't care for because I didn't want to waste space. Not only did I not want to criticize a particular wine or winery, but I didn't want to waste space for the reader. I wanted to spend as much time as I could for the reader to help him or her find a wine that they'd like rather than telling them what to avoid. It does. I was a civil servant for most of my career in my full-time life, and I felt the same way about wine. It was just, I I just felt very good sharing what I knew and what I discovered with the people who had appreciated
0: it. So with all the wines that you've tasted, I've got to believe you've tasted tens of thousands of wine uh, over your writing career. Uh, Just out of curiosity, did you ever have a favorite wine or favorite wine country? Kind of a loaded question, I know, but I'm, I'm just
1: curious. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good question. In fact, inevitably, someone or everyone will ask me that question, and you, I know, with all of your background, uh, have much more in mind with the question itself. I can, whenever someone less familiar with wine than you are, asks me what is my favorite wine, my retort is usually, ask me what my 10 favorite wines are, because I can't pick one but I can tell you a group of wines, for example, the wines of Tuscany and the wines of Piedmont. Now, admittedly, I've spent years and years tasting and writing about French wines, uh, Spanish wines, Portuguese wines, South American wines. But I guess in part because of my heritage and in part because of the books that I've really concentrated on writing, uh, I continue to migrate back to the wines of Italy and Tuscany and Piedmont are the two regions that get my attention.
0: Well, it's clear that you have a love of Italy, and it's clear you have a love of Italy in your writing, which I <laughs> now want to talk about a little bit, because, Dick, you're a pretty successful author of novels that take place in Italy, and I'm just fascinated by these wonderful books. Uh, they're great reads, by the way. Congratulations, too, on your success. But tell me, uh, how did this all come about? I mean, you're this amazing novelist now that I actually look forward to the next book.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. How did it come about? Um, If you were to ask my wife, she'd probably say it's because I'm a storyteller, which may not always come across in a positive way. (laughs) But um, yeah, I, I feel like I want to tell a story and in the case of Italy, I want to tell a story about the people of Italy, about the culture of Italy, and the, the history of Italy. My books are historical fiction, so the backbone or the spine of the story is really historically accurate. But the scenes are filled in with fictional characters, true a true historical novel, so that I can explore the intricacies of the culture and also make it more readable for the, uh, for the public.
0: Let's see. Of the 10 books, how many of these now are the historical fiction books?
1: That's a good question. One, two, three, four of them. And the, among my most, I'm most excited about the newest ones. That sounds like a winemaker who says, you know, someone asks a winemaker, <laughs> right. what's your best ever vintage? He always says it's the last one right. in order to sell. But it's true that the Sicily Chronicles I wrote in, as a homage to my father, he uh, was from Sicily. And But also, because I put about 10 years of research into it, I studied the history of the island of Sicily going back to almost prehistoric days, although mostly from around 10,000 BC to the present. And once I developed a, a pretty legit chronology of, of the last 11,000 years, then I began to identify scenes tumultuous times, invasions or wars that took place in Sicily and create an entire play with three acts for each and, and write about them. Each of the, the books are, are lengthy and I've been told at least by reviews, very successfully written. They're about 550 pages for part one and 550 pages for part two. So it'll hopefully be a long, enjoyable
0: read. Wow! Now I, I haven't read the Sicily Chronicles yet, but I fell in love with A Death in Tuscany, love, okay. it. Yeah. and and the Vienna Connection. Oh, thank you. These are great reads, and and you don't need to read them in order. At least I don't think so. I don't think I did.
1: But. No, no, you're, you're right, and thank you. They're not in. In fact, the Vienna Connection has two unique characteristics. One is that it's not set in Italy, which is my only book not set in Italy, and the second thing is because it's almost autobiographical. And, and also, a Death in Tuscany, I'm so glad you liked that. It was not only my first, but it was my most exciting book because it was almost a fantasy book about um, a, a young American, Italian-American man inheriting a winery in Tuscany
0: and going back. Maybe a little uh, dream best. It, it was a dream <laughs> book.
1: It was a dream right. book, for sure. So that was fun.
0: I have to say, talking about all of these wines has kind of made me thirsty. So, how about if we morph into this part of the podcast where I'm going to ask you what's in your glass?
1: All right. So, I thought that after all of our discussions and talk and what we were going into, that we should uh, focus on Italian wines. And so, imagine I've chosen, that. Imagine <laughs> that. <laughs> so, I've chosen two. And in fact, I decided to choose two both from Tuscany, although there are dozens or hundreds or more great wines in Italy that should be uh, tasted. One of them is the Santa Cristina, which used to be called a Santa Cristina Chianti Classico. It's made by the Antinori family. Oh, sure. And I happened to have recently visited uh, with um, Pietro Antinori. I I saw him uh, at his winery a few months back before the pandemic. Talked to him about that. And I even reminded him That as much as I love that wine, uh, it happens that my daughter's name is Kristen, so it gives me a special affinity for the wine.
0: Fantastic! And um, what year are we trying? What's the vintage we're trying?
1: All right, I have the two thousand sixteen, which I'm going to pour myself a sample of. And I mentioned that it was originally considered Chianti, and that's true. And it has not changed remarkably in its uh, in the method of Of blending or aging, but they've taken Chianti off of the label. You mentioned Super Tuscan, uh, but when you don't follow the rules, the laws that are included in the blend for Chianti Classico, you have to take that off of there. So Antinori still makes this Santa Cristina, doesn't call it Chianti, but it's still based on the same concept. It's a Sangiovese with a little bit of blend in order to. Fill out the gaps.
0: I once asked somebody, why do the Italians have so many rules and regulations when it comes to winemaking? And this Italian winemaker says, because we love to ignore them.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) That's actually
1: a great reason. And in fact, I think that every country, as you know, every country has rules and regulations about winemaking, but it's the Italians who seem to enjoy most not doing it.
0: So tell me about this 2006. I'm seeing you pour this and I'm I'm salivating because I, I love this wine.
1: So here we have it. And of course, it's red, which we knew. And it's a deep kind of a garnet. Yeah, it's beautiful. Red. It's yeah. young enough, 2016, that you don't really see that it's picked up any browning and it won't. In fact, this wine is not meant for long aging. It would be at its best Uh, from now until it's about eight years old. So that'll be a few more years.
0: Yeah, no, it's a beautiful, you know, we're doing this via Zoom. So you and I can see this, but our uh, listeners will only have the uh, audio portion of this, but that is a beautiful glass of wine.
1: It has a nose that is reminiscent of crushed grapes and red cherries, plus a bit of violet and soft notes floral notes that kind of lift that deep, rich, crushed fruit aroma and make it lighter. There's almost a sense of eucalyptus on it, but it's so hidden compared to what a lot of Americans would pick up with a Cabernet that it's probably better to describe it more as a touch of mint that goes with these others. So you can see how it's got this rich aroma that just comes at you, but also... Laces of beautiful, delicate, also scents that are worked through it. A medium body, again, red cherries, crushed red fruit, a little, just a tiny bit of earthiness, which is almost a combination of toasty oak and earth. And some herbs, and so what it does is it mingles, so they get this this sort of symphony of flavors in your mouth. One one of the characteristics of Chianti is that it is not so much a rustic wine, but it retains a bit of its country or rustic taste. It shouldn't be so elegant that you miss out on the gusto that comes with it, and so the. The balance that Antinori and some of the other Chianti makers have to achieve these days is a more modernized style, which is bright and rich and fresh and fruity, but also one that is soulful and and fills your mouth. And that's what this Santa Cristina does.
0: I've always thought of Chianti's as country charming. Yeah. That's that's kind I've of always thought I like
1: that of Chianti's as a a beautiful Tuscan woman in peasant. Oh boy, here we go. No, 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 <laughs> no. keep going. Peasant- It's not. No, it's not. I mean, and, and well, I could say a, a beautiful no, no. or a handsome keep- Tuscan man. There's something. It's <laughs> no. more natural and countrywide about them. It's not someone dressed up in a suit
0: in a in a fancy dress. Love it. Love it. All right, Dick, what else uh, What else you got lined up in a glass for us? Well,
1: I, I promised that we would have two wines from Tuscany, and rather than go white-red, I thought I'd go red-red. So there's another wine, very famous, made from the same grape or based on the same grape, Sangiovese, uh, from Tuscany, known as Brunello di Montalcino. Oh, yeah. So the Brunello di Montalcino, which is what I have, a Verbena 2010 Brunello di Montalcino. Uh, Verbena is one of the many producers. uh, There's a whole range of uh, Brunello's made. And this is based on 100% Sangiovese. So it retains that varietal character. And yet it is more elegant than the Chianti style, generally because it's aged longer in the barrel. It tends to be from the better vineyards, the older vineyards, the ones that are tended better or maybe on slopes. And in fact, it's important to note that in Montalcino, there are two wines made often by the same properties. The better vineyards and older vines will be turned into something called Brunello, and the younger vines, maybe on the lesser slopes or on the flatlands, will be called Rosso di Montalcino. So you have Brunello di Montalcino up at the top, you got Rosso di Montalcino at the bottom. And I'd like your, your folks and your fans to think about how, if they find a Rosso di Montalcino, it's probably a better deal financially than a Brunello. It's not going to be a better wine, but it might be a better deal because it tends to be made by the same winemakers in the same winery, by the same people. Uh, it's just a division between what, in France, they call call it their first label and second label. And that's sort of what this is.
0: This is a Brunello. This is, this a, is a Brunello. You know, this is the Brunello di Montalcino.
1: Yeah, so we have a Brunello di Montalcino. Now, there, there is also a story, or not a story, but sort of a, a thought in the wine business about Italian wines. And it refers to the three Bs. The 3 Bs tend to refer to the best wines of Italy and I think that might be short uh, shorting all the other wines. The 3 Bs are Barolo, Barbaresco and Brunello di Montalcino. The first two hail from Piedmont, Barolo and and Barbaresco and they're both made from again the same grape Nebbiolo but that's not our subject tonight. And the third B is Brunello di Montalcino. And the reason I say it is, it's always handy to have little memory aids. And so the three Bs are, and probably deserve to be considered, the three most noteworthy wines from Italy. Today we have a Brunella. So we do have one of these uh, from Tuscany. Montalcino is a beautiful town, by the way. So <laughs> Brunella is very, not only a famous wine, but a very sought after wine. And I remember the couple of times I've been there, being told by Ezio, who runs one of the wine shops near the Fortezza, he he reminded me that in Montalcino, there are more wine bars than there are churches. <laughs> um, yeah. It might not be hard to say in a U.S. city, but in Italy, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, that's saying something. So here we have the Brunello. It should taste different from a Chianti. Uh, again, deep color, actually deeper than the Santa Cristina that we just uh, tasted a moment ago. Uh, deep, rich red, fully infused throughout from top to bottom. The scent of this wine is going to be a little more reserved and a little more elegant than the Chianti. You ta- you can smell almost exclusively Sangiovese, not a surprise since it's a 100% Sangiovese. It has that it's a combination of things is not only red berries and plums and raspberries, but also tar, and hopefully that doesn't come across poorly, but it's the, that scent of petrol or tar that is more evident when the Sangiovese is left to its own devices. You know, it's,
0: we use sort of our own vernacular when when you and I, as wine writers or, or critics or judges, we talk about these these typical traits that I think are typical to us. So when we say something like tar or petrol uh, or even roast meat that we mm-hmm. find in these wines, I, sometimes I, I am concerned that they, our, our consumers, our readers, our listeners find these maybe a little off-putting when they absolutely shouldn't be because these are wonderfully actually even sought-after uh, aromas and flavors that we look for in really well-made wines. So I just throw that out there because if somebody does hear you say, you know, it's got a touch of tar in it, it's actually a good thing.
1: I completely agree. And it's it's difficult sometimes to avoid terms that are off-putting. One of my favorites, of course, is when some people refer to certain white wines as having a scent of cat pee. I mean, I am not interested in that wine if it smells like that. But what you just said, Scott, is absolutely right.
0: That's great. Call my wife, tell her I was right once. Uh, so, <laughs> so we're, this is the 2010 Verbena, and it's the Brunello de Montalcino, which is the same grape, by the yep. way. It's the Sangiovese. it's the same grape that we were just talking about in the Antonori, but you describe them both very differently from each other.
1: Starkly different. For example, the Santa Cristina is aged in wood, but only for about 18 months. The Brunello is aged in wood for four years. The idea with the Santa Cristina is to preserve the fruity character, whereas the idea behind the Brunello is to have it be mature and, in a way, more austere and a little bit more intellectual in that you want to try to really
0: piece together what it's presenting to you. You sure do talk pretty I am you, right? <laughs> you know what else has been enjoyable, Dick? Our time together today. I really, Lovely. really appreciate you coming on to the podcast. This has been uh, wonderful. I kind of feel like I've uh, been interviewing one of my teenage idols, and I really can't emphasize uh, how instrumental you were in my career as a wine writer. So thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much, Scott.
0: That'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP News Podcast. This episode was produced by Sarah Beth Hensley, and the music you heard is Wishful Thinking, by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, and don't forget to catch my Wine of the Week show every Friday on WTOP and WTOP.com. Until the next time, do good, drink well.
2: To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night.